0: Most people, even if they are introverted, have an innate need for connection, a need to belong. Robert Fulgram, a writer who was also an ordained minister for many years, wrote a story about a little girl who reminded him of that fact. One day, he had been left in charge of 80 children at the church while their parents were off at a meeting in the parish hall. Knowing he needed to do something to get these seven to 10-year-olds running around, he organized them into teams for a game. At one point, he yelled out, you have to decide right now, are you going to be a giant, a wizard, or a troll? While the groups were talking amongst themselves, figuring it out, Robert felt a tug on his pants leg. A small child was there looking up at him. In a soft but concerned voice, she asked, where do the mermaids stand? (laughs) What? Where do the mermaids stand? Yes, you see, I'm a mermaid. There are no such things as mermaids. Oh, yes, I am one. She didn't relate to being a giant or a wizard or a troll. She knew her category mermaid and was not about to leave the game and go stand against the wall like some loser. She intended to participate wherever mermaids fit into the scheme of things without giving up her dignity or identity. She took it for granted that there was a place for mermaids and that I would know just where. Well, where do the mermaids stand, all the mermaids, all those who are different, who do not fit the norm, who do not easily fit into our available boxes and pigeonholes. Answer that question, says Fulgram, and you can build a school, a nation, or a world on it. What was my answer at the moment? Every once in a while, I do say the right thing. The mermaid stands right here by the king of the sea, I said. So we stood there, hand in hand, reviewing the troops of wizards and giants and trolls as they rolled by in a wild disarray. It is not true, by the way, that mermaids do not exist. I know at least one personally. I have held her hand. Throughout the Gospels, by the things he says and does, Jesus teaches that each of us is loved for the unique child of God our Creator made us to be. One of the things Jesus does that continues to be an affront to the establishment of his time is bringing together people who they don't think are supposed to be together. He goes against cultural norms when he talks to a Samaritan woman at the well, when he tells the hated tax collectors, Zacchaeus, to come and be his guest, when he gets close enough to lepers to heal them. Widely condemned for his practice of including society's outcasts at the dinner table, Jesus continues to show unbounded hospitality. He sees beauty in the diversity of all of God's children. And so, in our scripture lessons today, when he talks about our unity, our oneness, Jesus is not talking about uniformity. He's not saying that everyone should have the same beliefs, or even be in agreement about things, rather he's referring to how God's love unites us and holds us together. When we meet up with Jesus in the Gospel of John today, he has shared a Last Supper with his disciples and washed their feet. By this time, it is clear to him that the road ahead is pointing to his death, and so he prays that God will be glorified through him. Then he prays for his disciples that they might be as one, just as God and Jesus are one. And finally, he prays for those who will believe in him through the words of his disciples. In other words, way back then, Jesus was praying for us. As we listen in on this private prayer, Jesus is speaking from the heart, but it's not what we might imagine. There is no talk of the success of his mission or the courage to go through it or even for more and more followers. He prays for unity. The scripture says that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Oneness, unity, is he kidding? Have Christians ever really been united? We know from Paul's letters to the early churches that even the very first faith communities had disagreements, spats, and struggles. Throughout history, there have been divisions not only within individual churches, but within and between denominations, between Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox and non denominationals In my early years in ministry, there was an ecumenical movement to try to celebrate all the things that the different strands of Christianity have in common, but we don't hear as much about that anymore. That is why World Communion Sunday is so important. It reminds us of what really matters, that we are one in Christ, one in love, no matter how different we might be. Now I told the children a little bit about the origins, I'm gonna tell you just a little bit more. It was back in 1933 and America was in the midst, actually it was one of the worst years of the Great Depression and there was threat of another world war on the horizon. People were fearful, they were struggling to survive. The pastor, whose name was Reverend Donald Kerr, and the leaders of Shadyside Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, I once went there, uh, wanted churches to share a sense of oneness, a sense of shared purpose in Christ, even in the midst of all that was going on in the world. And they encouraged other churches around them to do the same thing on the same day. The movement to get others involved started pretty slowly, but by the time World War II started in 1939, the idea spread quickly, not only around the United States, but all over the world. Isn't it exciting to think of the table of our Lord spreading around the globe? A lot of people notice our communion table is larger than most. Most of them are easier to walk around when you're having a wedding. (laughs) They're kind of right there. Especially on World Communion Sunday, I like that we have a big communion table and I like to think of that spreading out and around the whole world. When I have been in worship services in churches in other countries like Germany and Norway and the West Bank and Italy, I discovered that even when I couldn't keep up with the language. I didn't, I didn't have to understand everything that was said. There was still this amazing sense of unity in Christ. Not just because parts of the service were similar, like the Lord's Prayer and the hymns and the Scripture readings, but because it stirs the heart to think about people from different cultures united in worship and praise. In our reading from Revelation today, we heard John's vision of the kingdom of God. John wrote the book of Revelation when Christians were being persecuted for their faith and John himself was in exile. In his vision, heaven isn't depicted as a quiet place where a few little cherubs play harps as background music. Rather, there is this great multitude, too many people to count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and they wave palm branches and they praise God singing with gusto, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. It is a vision of joy, of exuberance, of unbounded love. Following in the way of Jesus Christ, the early church actively worked toward radical inclusion of all people. They believed that Christ had broken through the barriers that people placed between themselves and others especially between themselves and those they don't agree with or understand. Unity in Christ isn't something we achieve, it's a gift from God. Jesus startled people with the power of love, and he asked that we reflect that love in the way we treat one another. Of course it's not going to be easy. Some people dare us to love them and even push back at us for it. And yet the Apostle Paul, from a prison cell, also begs us to live with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. In his years on earth, Jesus showed us what it meant to welcome everyone to the table. Certainly in this church, we try to welcome everyone, and yet our welcome needs to extend even farther than the literal communion table to how we live from day to day. Are we going to be closed off, or are our arms going to be wide open? A woman in Kansas has given a beautiful example of that attitude of openness and graciousness. Her name is Meg Hereford, and her story appeared in the Washington Post back in the year 2020. We all know what happened in the year 2020. Meg is the owner of Lady Ladybird Di- Lady Diner, A little but lively, successful place on the main street in the college town of Lawrence, Kansas. Especially known for her famous homemade pies, the tiny space of the diner would draw up to 600 people a day. During the early months of the pandemic, Meg, like so many restaurant owners across the country, had to close down and lay off employees. Just days after closing, she and a couple of former employees began giving out sack lunches to anyone who needed it. No strings attached. The homeless population in that area had been growing even before the pandemic, and now over 9,000 people in that county alone were out of work. She began handing out hundreds of meals a day, funded by community donations. When the time came that she could begin to reopen, Meg faced an agonizing choice. Should she open the diner the way it was before? If she did, what would happen to all the people she had been feeding, the newly destitute families who came shyly, or the local buckster Buckster who treated her to a slightly off-key serenade each morning? Although Meg had been a small business owner and fixture in this Midwestern town for years, the pandemic had changed everything. It had changed her. On the one hand, Meg had a family to feed. On the other, there were so many people who needed her sack lunches enough to have food enough for each day. This is noble work, feeding people, she said. I don't want to cheapen it to try to cram as many nickels as I can into the piggy bank. She decided that she couldn't write these people out of the equation. Whatever rebirth would happen for Lady Bird, it had to include the hungry people she had been serving. Maybe it will work, maybe it won't, she said, but it definitely feels like it's worth a shot. Meg began calling her place the Lady Bird Diner, community kitchen, and market. And she managed to both restart a business and continue to help those without jobs. It was only when the pandemic finally wound down and the local economy perked up and people went back to work that the diner returned to its original form. In the broad scheme of things, it might not seem that what Meg did was that big a deal, but she risked her own business to respond to the needs around her. She was gripped by the power of love that can bring together people that we might not ever see together. In doing so, she changed what plenty of folks in that little town understood as the meaning of what together, what being as one, could look like. How might you and I do that? How might other people recognize the face of Jesus' unconditional love through us? How can we be faithful disciples of the one who redefined what it means to love your neighbor? Think of the little girl in the story asking, Where do the mermaids stand? In our church, in our individual lives, in our hearts, do we make room for folks who don't fit in our boxes that society or our long-held assumptions have created for them? Maybe it's time for us to think about how we can keep widening the circle of acceptance. God desires unity with so much that Jesus came to us through the mystery of the Incarnation. God became one of us. As we partake of communion today, remember that your little bit of bread and juice started with a meal at a table with Jesus and his disciples just before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. He was trying to help his followers understand that whenever they participated in this meal, he would be present with them. His love was stronger than all of the things that were about to happen to him. Jesus prayed for us, for you and for me, that we might be one in God's love and share that love in this world. May we pray every day that we might live into that gift. Amen.